And so in in that vein, I give that recap because as we read chapter 2, I hope what you'll actually see... Now look, Paul didn't write verses and chapters when he wrote this letter. Uh, That was a later thing way down the road in history. But as this letter is organized into chapters, I hope what you'll see is that the end of this chapter is actually very fitting for everything that we've already looked at before. Because the question still remains, what does it really look like if I believe everything here in chapter three is true or chapter two is true? What does that look like in my life? Well, Paul wants to answer that. He didn't necessarily know you were going to ask that, but he answers that by pointing us to two people that embody this in their lives. And so let's read this uh, Philippians chapter two, starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you. Did I just lose my battery maybe? I don't know. I'll keep reading for a second. For he has been longing for you and all has been and, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. I lost my place as I went to hit my button. What verse was I in? Near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should also have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send to him, send him therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands whether we have a microphone or not. Nice. Good job, Benjamin. Benjamin, everyone. That was was really good timing on that. Um, Anyway. So what does a heart and life touched and changed by the truth of everything that we have plumbed the depths of in chapter 2? What does that look like? What Paul does in pointing to these two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and also really Paul ultimately ends up pointing to himself that that's not his intent. We'll look at that in a minute about some of the things he says. We actually see, see it in Paul as well. What does this look like? It looks like this. Joy... In self-forgetfulness. That's what it looks like. Uh, And I use that title for two reasons. One, because that's that's a subject I want to just harp on tonight and be done. But also because I am borrowing very, very liberally from a little booklet by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. So just go ahead and throw that out there. It's a shameless, uh, I'm using it and regurgitating it on you. Or to you, on you sounds gross. Sorry. So, what is joy? What is joy in self-forgetfulness? And this is something that Tim Keller points out. And I think it's so true. Think about 
it traditionally. Traditionally, in traditional cultures and societies throughout history, the traditional view was that to have too high of a view of yourself was the beginning of destruction. Pride comes before the fall, right? Um, that, that, that has kind of been a universally held thing down through history. Uh, and the Greeks called this hubris, the Greek word hubris, right? To have a destructive, too high of a view of yourself. You know, like Icarus flew too close to the sun. Uh, Narcissus drowned because he loved his reflection in the water. Uh, hubris explains why Oedipus's parents try to defy fate. Uh, by trying to destroy their baby, but he survives. Uh, Oedipus's adoptive parents, hubris causes them to not tell him the truth of his past. Oedipus himself gives in to hubris, right? And ends up killing his biological father, not knowing it's his biological father, and then falling in love with and marrying his biological mother, not knowing it's his biological mother. So what is Greek mythology telling us? Hubris is bad, okay? <laughs> right? Hubris was bad. And that's how traditional societies and cultures viewed it, pretty universally. But I want you to think about that in contrast to our modern view. And the modern view of the 20th and 21st century, especially in the West. Everywhere you look, and we could really dive into this, everywhere you look, the society's answer to society's problems and even individual problems, our culture says that the underlying problem is actually too low. Of a view of yourself. Our culture says you need to increase your view of yourself. If you just like yourself enough, if you just love yourself enough, then you get to tap into your potential, right? We have too low of a view of ourselves. We lack self esteem. We need more self esteem. Uh, there's a lady named Lauren Slater who, in the New York Times, she wrote this article called The Trouble with Self Esteem. And she kind of looked into the research. Of self-esteem, because basically the last 20, 30, 40 years, that's been the answer to everything. You're depressed, you need to love yourself more. You have anger issues, you need to love yourself more. You keep acting out by abusing this person, you need to love yourself more. That's been the answer to everything. And what she says is that until recently, nobody has really disputed that high self-esteem is essential to your well-being. Self-esteem being defined Simply as liking yourself, having a positive opinion of your actions. And so the opposite, the opposite of high self-esteem, many people have led to be like that's that can be the, the root cause of anything from substance abuse to terrorism. Now, it's interesting. She wrote this in 2002. And I remember I, I didn't Google it, but I remember there being articles after 9-11 that basically said the terrorist must have had a low self-esteem. And that's why they did what they did. I kid you not. I need to Google it to back myself up, but I didn't. Sorry. Somebody can do that for me later. And so she goes on to make this point in our article, citing several studies. She says, there's absolutely no evidence that low self-esteem is in and of itself harmful. You saw that's interesting. And so we're left with the question, right? Which is it? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to be my own cheerleader and supposed to like lift myself up? Do we need to be drill sergeants to ourselves and beat ourselves down? What is it? Well, I would suggest to you, am I losing power again? Um, I would suggest to you, Just keep going. I'll try to keep going with my prop at my side. Um, what I suggest to you is that here in chapter 2, Paul shows us and the gospel shows us that it's neither. 
The gospel provides a whole different way. It's not about self-esteem. It's not about, uh, it's not about high self-esteem. It's not about low self-esteem. If we truly believe the gospel, what it's about is joy in self-forgetfulness. For, so what does this look like? Let's move through it quickly. First, let's look at, wow, that was loud. Sorry. Now I'm yelling again. The opposite of self-forgetfulness. Take a very counseling approach here. The opposite of self-forgetfulness. Let's, let's think about the opposite of self-forgetfulness. How do we do that? The way that you do that is look at this passage and look at every statement that's made about Timothy or about Epaphroditus or, about, or Paul even implies about himself and insert the opposite. It would look, so, you know, I'm probably doing a bad, bad job of illustration, but, illustrating this, but it might sound something like this. He might say this. Follow me through the passage. He might say something like this. Look, if it, we're talking about the opposite of self-forgetfulness. Look, y'all, Timothy is way too important to me, and y'all are just going to have to make do without it. Or, hey, look, y'all, Timothy has a lot on his place, and he really can't worry about y'all. Or, hey, look, Timothy is a go-getter. And before you know it, he'll have surpassed me as an apostle. He is climbing that ladder, baby. Or he'll say, look, I know Epaphroditus means a lot to you, but I'm sorry, he ain't coming back. Or, hey, look, don't worry about Epaphroditus. I don't even think he's had time to think about you. He's doing so well. Look, Epaphroditus has played a smart game. He hasn't taken too many risks. He's been conservative and he's just towed the line and he's going to make it on his own just fine. Again, I'm probably even doing a bad job of, of doing that, but you get the sentiment, right? If you start making some of these statements into the opposite, it completely changes the tone of the passage. If you start making some of these statements opposite, it doesn't fit in chapter 2. And what actually, when you change some of these things to the opposites, what you're actually inserting is what would come most naturally to us. Because what comes most naturally to us is self-absorption. Which really displays itself in pride. So the opposite of self-forgetfulness is pride. And that's precisely what you actually don't see a hint of in anything that Paul says here. And this is one of these passages, right? You go to books like Philippians to do your quiet time because they do talk about these big things about how Jesus humbled himself and how Jesus is exalted and how we'll look at in chapter 3 about how I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus And we get to passages like this, 19 through 30, and they're kind of throwaway passages, right? It's like Paul just all of a sudden couldn't stop but, like, tell us his personal business. But there's actually a lot going on here. Because there's not a hint of pride or selfishness in Paul's description of these two men. And by how Paul talks about them, we see that there's no hint of it in him either. Because what he's telling us and what he's showing us is that these are two men that believe the gospel. These are two men that love the gospel and they love you because of that. And we see it in Paul too, because I believe the gospel, I love you. And so at the heart of pride, what would be the opposite of what we find here is would be a a distorted view of self. And the opposite of that is of self-forgetfulness is because forgetting ourselves is the last thing that we do. But it shows itself again and again. We see the opposite of self-forgetfulness in ourselves all the time. And it constantly raises, it rears its head in our relationships, in the way that we go about our schoolwork, you name it. Think about this. Have you ever wondered how you never really notice your body until something's wrong with it? Like, nobody walks around campus one day and is like, man, my toes are really going to work today. Right? You don't think that. 
But if you have a stubbed toe, it is all you can think about, is it not? Or look, you, never, you don't walk around and go like, my lungs are just pounding this oxygen, man. You don't think that. I hope not. Um, why? But as soon as you get a nasty cough, what do you say? You say things like, I think I'm going to cough up my lung, right? We know that we have a problem with pride, and we know that pride is a problem because we cannot stop thinking about ourselves. We cannot stop thinking about ourselves. And one of the ways that the Bible constantly says that we do this is by comparing ourselves to others and by boasting in things to compare ourselves to others. And again, you look at this passage and the way Paul is talking to the Philippians and the way Paul describes these two men, and we see it's completely foreign to how they live. And we wonder, how is that? How is that? Pride, comparison, boasting. It's trying to make ourselves better than others. It's trying to build like a self-esteem resume because that's what everything tells us is that we need to think better of ourselves. In other words, it's the opposite of self-forgetfulness. But let's move on. Okay, just a rough sketch of the opposite of self-forgiveness. But let's look at the secondly, the picture of self-forgetfulness that Paul draws for us here. If we're going to see the picture of self-forgetfulness, look at how... The three people in this passage display it. And the first, Paul is not trying to draw attention to himself. But you see this most vividly in Paul. And we've talked about this. Think about where Paul is. He's in prison. And very literally, he understands that at any moment, it could be the last moment of his life. The door could swing open at any moment and he could be led out to his execution. That's the state that he is in. And so when you really understand the kind of real need and where Paul is in his life, you look at verse 19 and you understand that this is a very costly thing for him to say. Feel the weight of it. I hope to send Timothy to you. And then he says, I have no one like him. You feel the weight of that? I hope to send Timothy to you, Philippian believers. I have no one like Timothy in my life. You go read First and Second Timothy and you see this come out in Paul, what he says to Timothy there even more. I have no one like me. He goes like him. He goes on to say he serves with me as a son with a father. What does that mean? It means he does things for me. He obeys me. He serves me. He's subordinate to me because he loves me. That's the kind of guy that Timothy is. And so the picture of Paul here is that Paul is so self-forgetful. It leads him to love the Philippian believers so much that he is willing to send to them the person that means the most to him in his life. I think it's a fair statement about Timothy. That's how self-forgetful Paul is. And then there's Timothy. You look at Timothy. It's what Paul says. There's no one like him. That's how Paul describes Timothy. This is pretty high praise. And one of the reasons he says there's no one like him is because he says, Timothy will genuinely care for you. We don't know if, uh, I I can't remember if Timothy was with uh, Paul when he planted the church or not. But he's saying, if Timothy comes to you and he loves you, know that it comes natural to him. Loving you, caring for you comes naturally for me. He won't do it because it's his duty. He won't do it just because he's doing it for me. He will mean it. 
Another way that Timothy is, there's no one like him is look at verse 21. Paul says, when I think about everybody else, they're all selfish compared to Timothy. Now think about this. Wouldn't you like to have a friend or be a friend (laughs) that that describes you? That when people think about you, they say, compared to everybody else, everyone is selfish compared to that person. That's Timothy. And think about this. We know that Timothy was a very capable minister. Paul, the the Apostle Paul, would leave Timothy in charge of churches that he had planted. Okay? Paul trusted Timothy with whatever he needed him to do. He pastored churches on the behalf of Paul. He was gifted. He was more than capable. And to that, Paul says, he serves with me like a son to a father. Meaning he doesn't try to do it on his own, to go his own, to surpass me. He doesn't even think about that. He just loves me and he serves me. Then there's Epaphroditus, right? Look, no one had a relationship with Paul like Timothy from everything we know. And we know that Paul, you read Paul's letters, we know that Paul was never scared to be very blunt about what he thought about people. Um, he will tell people flat out, you're being an idiot. He did it to, the, he did it to Peter. In Galatians, he tells a story uh, about his apostleship and how he came uh, to Peter one time. And Peter was only eating with Jews and not with Gentiles. And he says, I rebuked Peter to his face. Paul was not scared to say, like, look, he needed a talking to and I gave it to him. But what does he say about Epaphroditus? My brother... A fellow worker, a fellow soldier, your messenger and minister in my need. And then he says about him, look, y'all, he's, he's, he's all these things, meaning he has done everything you've asked and more when you sent him to me. But he misses you. That's basically what Paul's saying there. He misses you. And he's saying basically it kills him that you're worried about the fact that he was sick. And indeed, he was sick. He almost died. You sent him out for the gospel, and he risked his life to do what you sent him to do. And so I hope that I can send him back to you so that all of you can be happy and whole again. And so do you see, there's the picture that Paul sketches for you. And I just add, do you see the common thread in all of those? It's self-forgetfulness. The common thread in all three of them Three men, and look, Paul talks about women in other places in the same way, so it's not just a man thing, okay? Uh, And at the end of Romans, he mentions some women in the same way. But right here, what we're seeing is three men who believe everything that we've looked at in chapter 2, and we're seeing how it exhibits exhibits itself in their lives, in self-forgetfulness, which is the opposite of pride. It's what all of chapter 2 has been about, and it's this, gospel humility. It's it. Gospel humility equals self-forgetfulness. And it equals self-forgetfulness, especially in how we love and care for other people. That's what we see. C.S. Lewis in in Mere Christianity, he said, there's a thing that you remember from meeting a truly gospel, humble person. And what you remember about a truly gospel, humble person is that they were more interested in you genuinely than anything else. That's what you remember about a humble person. That they were more genuinely interested in you than anything else. And look, we read this all the way back in verse 3 when Paul exhorted us, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And so what we're beginning to see, this picture that we're seeing, is that the answer... 
to our distorted view of self, the fact that we can't seem to stop being obsessed with ourselves, it's not low self-esteem. It's not a better high self-esteem. It's gospel humility. It's gospel humility. It's not thinking more of yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. But as Tim Keller is uh, apt to say a lot, it's thinking of yourself less. The answer to the distorted view of ourselves is not to think more of yourself, not to think less of yourself, but to think less, to think of yourself less. And also in return, thinking more of others at the same time. That's the picture we get of Paul and of Timothy and Epaphroditus here. So the opposite of self-forgetfulness, that would be pride. The picture of self-forgetfulness is gospel humility. So what is the key? Paul basically is illustrating for us what this, this really can be something that is true in our lives. Because here's a couple of guys that it is so true of. Because they love Jesus, because they believe Jesus loves them, this is how much they care about other people and don't care what it means to themselves. What is the key to self-forgetfulness? And again, we could talk about, we could talk about this in so many ways. Self-forgetfulness is hard for us. Because we connect everything to ourselves. I say this a lot. I don't think I'm the only person that think this, thinks this. But I think there's a, if you really think about it, we go about our lives thinking that life is a movie about us. You ever thought about this? This is the way we kind of operate day to day. We just kind of, even though we can't see ourselves only, except when we're viewing a mirror. I don't know about you, but like when I walk into a crowded room, I imagine how I look to other people. Does anybody else do that? Am I alone in that? Okay. You do that. When you go into a social context, you, everything is connected to you. Right? When I'm, this is the worst. Okay. Let's, let's be vulnerable for a minute. This is the worst when you're preaching. I guess it's all a public speaking. Y'all, people make some of the weirdest faces when you speak in front of them. This happens more in churches than it does here. I kind of block y'all out when I'm here. But it's, the, it's the, lattice, the lattice work. I just can't get my eyes off it. But... Like, sometimes you'll be preaching and people will be like. And these thoughts race through my head like, did I say something wrong? Like, did I say something heretical? And like, I keep talking, but I'm thinking in my head and trying to go back. Did I, did I mess something up? Or like when two people are giggling in the back and it's like, obviously something, something is wrong with me. Like, what? Right? We think everything's connected to us. We think everything is about us. So self-forgetfulness seems like a pipe dream. Madonna, of all people, Madonna, right? Uh, she's like in her 60s now, and so y'all probably don't even care who Madonna is or what. But she is a huge icon of pop culture history, right? And what I'm about to read to you sounds really neurotic. But I would actually suggest you, she gets herself more than any of us get ourselves. Listen to what she said in an interview in Vogue magazine. She said this. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Do you ever wonder why famous people who seem to have it all together keep doing stupid things? Madonna is telling you the explanation right there. I feel like I'm still mediocre, so I feel like i got to do something else stupid to matter. And then that's also college, I think, as well, uh, for some of you at least. Pride issues forth 
in this comparison game because we are always trying to prove that we are somebody. We have this fear, this constant fear that we're nobody. And we have this drive inside of us that is constantly pushing us to prove that we're somebody. And the thing is, is that we all go about this in different ways. Some of us go about it overtly and we do stupid things that draws attention to ourselves. Others of you do it in secret and in quiet and in shyness, but you're doing the same thing because you just want to know that you're worth something. This is, so why is gospel humility equivalent to self-forgetfulness? Here it is. Gospel humility is equivalent to self-forgetfulness. Because when I understand the gospel, when I believe the gospel, when I take it in, what I understand, what I truly, maybe for the only time in my life, finally come to believe is that I don't have anything to prove. That's what the gospel tells us. That I don't have anything to prove. And because I don't have anything to prove, I can forget myself. Now, how does that become true? I don't have anything to prove because of everything we've read in chapter 2. Because Jesus forgot himself. But he forgot himself explicitly for us. And he did it. And when he did it, he proved himself. Which proves us. Which makes us somebody And so we no longer have anything to prove. Paul puts it like this when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. He says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, soak that in. This is the Apostle Paul, okay? I think any person could argue, Christian or not, religious or not, that of the top ten human beings of all human history, Paul makes it into the top ten as, as influential persons in history. Okay? As far as what he wrote in the, in the New Testament and how it's influenced Christianity and all that. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I am the chief of all the sinners that have ever been. That's what he's saying. And so what you, you might say, well, doesn't that seem like the low self-esteem route that we need to beat ourselves up a little bit? Sounds like that maybe, right? But here it is. Let's break these three down again. How can Paul send to the Philippian church Timothy, who was like a son to him, Because Paul knows that God loved him so, so much that he sent his only son for him. And so Paul is free to forget himself and send Timothy on. How could Timothy so faithfully and lovingly serve Paul as a son, even when Paul is in prison? And Timothy could have said, look, Paul, you can't use me anymore. I'm sorry. I got to go do some other things. Because Timothy knew that Jesus lovingly obeyed and served and did everything his father wanted for us. How could Epaphroditus leave his home and his family and even risk his life to visit some guy in prison who could die any day? 
Because Epaphroditus knew that Jesus forgot himself, left his home, left his father, knowing that it was going to cost him his life. I hope you're seeing this living illustration of Philippians chapter 2 as Paul rounds this out. Because look, we're all like Madonna, whether you, that's a weird sentence, but we're all like Madonna. We're all searching for that verdict. We're all searching for that ultimate eternal verdict that we're somebody. And we will continue daily going after anything and everything to tell us that we are somebody. But in the gospel, we find the freedom of self-forgetfulness because what we realize is that I don't have to search for the verdict anymore. I've already got it. And it's complete. It's as Paul says at the beginning of Romans 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's absolute. Nothing can change it. As he rounds out Romans chapter 8, he'll say, in fact, there is nothing in this world and there's nothing out of this world that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I don't have to wake up every day and go to trial about whether or not I am somebody because I've already been told I am. And I had a Savior who proved it and paid for it with his life. And so you see, because I'm not searching for a verdict, it's not up to me. I can enter the world on any given day understanding that it is not up to me to fill what is lacking in myself. Because I can't do that anyway. No, I can actually go out and move into the relationships that God has put into my life, and I can actually pour myself out. Now, you've got to be careful with that because some of you pour yourselves out, but you just pour yourselves out to pour yourself out because you think that's what you're supposed to do. What I'm actually talking about here is the Timothy, the Paul, the Epaphroditus, the Jesus pouring out. A pouring out from fullness. A pouring out that leaves me actually fuller than I was before. That I can pray Psalm 23 and genuinely understand and believe that my cup runs over. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. Close with us. I've been present for the birth of my three children. So I've been present for three births in my life. Um, And that sounds weird. Sorry. But follow me. There's nothing. this This is just a man's point of view. Okay. Trying to love my wife. Okay, Uh, be there for my wife, be there for my children as they were born. But the truth of the matter is, no matter how nice your your hospital labor and delivery wing is, there's nothing pleasant about giving birth. And that's just from a man's point of view. I have no idea what it's like from a woman's point of view, other than what they say. But think about this, and maybe you've only seen it in movies, but maybe it's intuitive, you know it's true. What happens the moment the baby is delivered and placed in the mother's arms? Nothing else matters. As weirded out as pregnancy was to me, a man, the moment I held my children for the first time, didn't matter. Why? It's mysterious, right? But you hold that child for the first time and... 
It's not a thought. It's not a choice. It just comes out of you. I'm going to love you and take care of you forever. That lasts until they start to talk. But what is that? I think in some way it's a taste. It's a momentary taste of what the gospel says is the joy of self-forgetfulness. That nothing else matters. If I truly understand who this Jesus is, what this Jesus did, and what this Jesus thinks about me, what this Jesus feels about me, there becomes planted in my very soul an eternal, an unquenchable joy of self-forgetfulness. I actually am free to forget myself, maybe for the first time. And so I just leave you with that question. Do you even have a hint of what that could be like? Do you want to know what that could be like? It was possible in these three men's lives. And I would suggest to you that history is littered with examples upon example upon example of the joy of self-forgetfulness. Let's pray. Father, even in our best days, we know that we are at best spiritual paranoid schizophrenics. Would you so captivate our hearts that we would even maybe just get a taste of the joy of self-forgetfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.